This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. So, uh, in a moment, you're going to stand for the scripture reading and uh, the scripture reading on which the sermon is based. And you're going to notice if you're here last week, uh, that the text that's going to be read is the same this week as last. And I want to tell you quickly why that is. It's not because Rude did a horrible job uh, preaching the sermon. He did a fantastic job. Uh, the reason is, is when, when I was planning the sermon series out even months ago, uh, I, I knew that the, these 12 verses needed to be handled together. Okay, they are, uh, they, they, the flow works in such a way they can't be separated. Uh, but it was a lot, and so I started to think about it, and I realized that not only could you deduce from the passage uh, Paul's paradigm for ministry, uh, but you could also easily see in the passage uh, the person that Paul was uh, in that ministry. And so there's two angles that we're taking on the passage, the paradigm and the person. Again, the paradigm for ministry, uh, the person in ministry. And we know that there's significant overlap. This is a tongue twister, so I'm going to read it. Uh, We know there's overlap between the two. Paul's paradigm was personal, and Paul was the person executing his paradigm. So we know there's overlap, but we thought if we kind of took two looks at this passage from two different angles, uh, we'd have the best chance at covering all of it. So again, last week was Rue. He preached on Paul's paradigm for ministry. Uh, I won't reiterate that. It was fantastic. I would encourage you uh, to listen to the podcast if you haven't heard it already. This morning, I've been given the assignment of thinking about who Paul was uh, in ministry. And so last week, if you're like, why did Ruth skip like six verses? And if this week you're like, why is Ted skipping over verses? Uh, that's the reason why. We're taking two shots at this one passage. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. If you're able, please remain standing. For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers and sisters, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So again, in this passage where where Paul writes about his entrance into and his ministry among the Thessalonians, we can not only deduce his paradigm for ministry last week, but we can see who Paul was as a person uh, in ministry this week. Two points, two points this morning. 
Uh, First, the person Paul was. The person Paul was. And and two, uh, the path to becoming that person. The person Paul was and the path uh, to becoming that person. So first, our longest point by a long shot, a point with many sub points, but we're still calling it two points. Uh, Our longest point is, is the person that Paul was. We're going to look at Paul's description of himself in ministry. Uh, But before we do that, I want you to understand the context of the letter. I want you to understand why Paul had to remind the Thessalonians of his character in the first place. Because this is a little awkward, I think. Is it a little awkward for you to listen to Paul speak so highly of himself? To speak so highly of his team? To go on and on for 12 verses? I would say this is a little awkward. It, It sounds a little defensive. Was it necessary? Was Paul just bragging? Was Paul allowed to do this because he was an apostle? Why did he do it? I mean, did he have to do it? If if you look back through the passage from 50,000 feet, it becomes obvious that that, that Paul is on trial. There's no baby in that. Everything's going to be okay. (laughs) Look at all those men surrounding him, helping him. That's awesome. That's community right there. So if you look at the passage from 50,000 feet, you, you can see that Paul is on trial. Now, he's not on trial in some court, like a Roman court, a Macedonian court, a Jewish court for that matter. There are times in his life where he was actually on trial. But, but Paul was on trial in the court of public opinion. It's obvious that, that Paul thinks of himself as on trial because if you think about the language and if you think about the logic that he uses in these verses, it becomes clear that he's defending himself. So, for example, Paul says, look in verse 10, he specifically says, you are witnesses. This is the language of a trial. And God also, y'all are witnesses of our conduct. If you look back up in verse five, Paul had just said that God was a witness. So this is the second time he calls God to witness in regards to his character and ministry. At least five times in the passage, Paul reminds the Thessalonians that they can reflect on their own experience of him and remember the kind of person he was like in their midst. Verse one, for you yourselves know. Verse two, as you know. Verse five, as you know. Verse nine, for you remember. Verse 11, for you know. The English know, it shows up four times in the passage, and it's actually the Greek verb to see. So when Paul says, you know, he's not saying you conceptually understand something I taught you. He's saying from your own experience, from what you saw, you know the kind of person that I was. And so why is Paul, in essence, defending himself extensively in our passage? If you follow the rhythm of the passage, over and over he says, I did not do X. You know, you saw, I did Y. So why? It's because he's clearly facing some sort of accusation, some sort of accusation that was undermining his message. Some sort of accusation undermining his message, undermining his credibility. Some sort of accusation in Thessalonica that was going after the belief of the Thessalonians and the message that Paul brought. And so Paul, uh, unwilling to have their faith hurt by the accusations against him, defends himself. And so while Paul does not revile the one who reviled him, like Jesus, Paul Paul does not point out who's doing this. He, He doesn't point out, he doesn't say anything bad about the person accusing him. Without reviling the one reviling him, he speaks to who he was as a person, and you would have to, to guess that he's speaking to the extent necessary to protect the faith of the Thessalonians, to, to protect their trust in God, to protect uh, their growth in Jesus and in salvation. 
And so we don't know exactly who or how many were leveling these accusations against Paul. But if you, if you look at the passage, it's, it's easy to deduce what the accusations were. For example, verse 1, Paul was evidently being accused of entering Thessalonica in vain. It makes no sense for him to say, I did not come to you in vain, unless he's being accused of such. Uh, evidently, verse 3, he's being accused of being one who is attempting to deceive. Verse 4 is one who is trying to please men. Verse 6 is one who is seeking glory. Uh, the list goes on and on. Keep in mind that when, when Paul and Silas and Timothy, when they left Thessalonica, they were run out of Thessalonica. There were these jealous Jews and these power-hungry Greeks uh, persecuting them, seeking them out, desiring to destroy them. And the leadership team, the young leadership team in Thessalonica decided that it was time for them to go. But remember that when they went, they went to Berea and the persecutors followed them all the way to Berea and ran them all the way to Corinth. You can pick up from the book of Acts, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians that, that these persecutors didn't stop once Paul and the team were gone. They persecuted and were even executing the new believers in Thessalonica. And so it's obvious from the passage that the persecutors who were doing all that they could to, to maintain their free city uh, status in Rome, they were doing all they could to maintain their status uh, with Rome. They, they were slandering and discrediting Paul. They were accusing him things that, of things that weren't true. They were doing whatever they could in Thessalonica to get these young believers to renounce their faith and step back in line with culture. And so why do we have the record of text? Uh, uh, why is it recorded in the text, uh, Paul, Paul defending himself? Because he was being attacked. Because it wasn't about him. It was about the gospel and the Thessalonians. Now, I want to share with you one more, what I find to be an interesting and incredibly relevant fact about the context in Thessalonica. And then we'll, we'll jump into the person Paul was. So really, it's three points, but I'm putting it all into the first point. So interesting fact. So we know from various sources um, that Thessalonica, the city uh, where the Thessalonians lived, uh, it was a, it was a, a popular uh, place for itinerant philosophers. It was a hotbed uh, for philosophers known as the sophist. Uh, the so-called sophists in Paul's day were charlatans. They were fakes. They were frauds. The sophists were in no way qualified philosophers or teachers. They were these traveling orators who would employ various underhanded tactics to make a living. They would enter into a town. They would enter in with much pomp and circumstance. They would stir up a crowd. They would use the crowd for praise and sex and money. And then in the middle of the night, they would disappear without a trace. And as I said, Thessalonica was overrun by these sophists. Uh, Thessalonica was on the Via Ignatia. That's the largest east-west road in the world at the time. Thessalonica sat, in, uh, in the, sat on the busiest uh, north-south road in all of Macedonia. Thessalonica enjoyed the, having the best harbor uh, on the north side of the Mediterranean Sea or the Aegean Sea. Thessalonica was a very wealthy city. Thessalonica was a very promiscuous city. It was like New York and Las Vegas all in one. As such, Thessalonica was overrun by these sophists, these traveling philosophers. They would go in and out of the city, uh, making money, having pleasure, uh, having no integrity at all. And here's the point. Uh, several historic, or you might say genuine philosophers of Paul's day, those philosophers you might have studied uh, in college, philosophers like Epictetus and Dio Chrysostom and Plutarch, they actually write about these sophists in their writings. We have their writings with us. 
They write about these charlatans. And when they write about them, do you want to know what words and phrases they use in regards to them? Things like, they entered in vain. They were impure. They were deceptive. They were in error. They used flattery. They wore masks to cover up greed. They sought glory from their audiences. Sound familiar? I'm not in any way saying that one of these historic philosophers was the one bringing accusation uh, against Paul. All I'm saying is you can deduce from the passage and you can understand from history that Paul was being lumped into this group called the Sophists. And, and they were trying to undermine him and rob him of his message. And so with that being said, I hope show, shedding some light on, on why and how Paul defended himself. Let's, let's look at the person Paul was. I've come up with three descriptions for him and his team. We'll put them on the screen in turn, uh, starting with the first. First, Paul, Paul was sourced by the highest of motivations. You can see this in verses three through seven. If you look at verses three through seven, you can see in verse four, Paul clearly says that their driving force, their motivation was this desire to please God. Okay, and so, so while Paul clearly states that that is their motivation, he spends a lot more time stating what their motivation was not. Look at the, the beginning of verse three. He says, our appeal, that is their preaching, our ministry, does not spring from, is not sourced by, is not motivated by. And then in verses three through seven, he mentions at least six realities that did not motivate him. I'm gonna rattle through them. First, verse three, error. Paul's like, I did not get an erroneous message from God. I am not a well-intentioned, erroneously informed man. Uh, second, in verse three, Paul says that he's not motivated by impurity. This is the word used in the New Testament for sexual impurity. If you look down at verse 10, Paul says, you are witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Paul doesn't say that they were holy and righteous and blameless before God. He says they were holy and righteous and blameless towards the Thessalonians. Again, it is well document, documented, even back to the time of Plato and Socrates, that the sophists sought to wow and to woo the vulnerable in a city in order to entice them sexually, promising them incredible advancements in life if they had sex with the sophist. And Paul's like, we were not motivated by sexual pleasure in the least. Next, third, Paul says in verse three that he wasn't motivated by an attempt to deceive. Uh, Dio Chrysostom wrote about the sophist love for trickery and for deception, uh, that many sophists were deeply motivated simply by deceiving someone and duping them. And Chrysostom said the reason is, is because they feel powerful. Some were motivated by power, but Paul said that's not what motivated us. Keep going, verse four. Paul says, we didn't speak out of a motive to please men. So people pleasing, the approval of people, that was not our motivation. Again, I, I am telling you, all these words, all these motives can be found in these historic descriptions of the sophists. Keep going, look at verse five. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext, a mask, a cloak for greed. God is witness. Flattery is when you use complimentary words to gain power over another person in order to use them in order to get what you want from them, usually financial gain. And so Paul's gonna speak to this idea of greedy for gain in a few more verses, but for now he's saying there is no way that you can label our three weeks among you as greedy for gain. Finally, in terms of false motivations, look at what Paul says in verses six and seven. He speaks, by the way, to the motive that is most often attributed to the sophists by the historic philosophers. It is the motive 
or the desire for glory. Verse six, nor did we seek glory, praise, worship from people, whether that be you or from others. We know that the sophists love for their audiences to stand and to cheer. The sophists uh, live for the day that the audience would stand up and, and cry out, bravo, bravo. The sophists live for the day that the audience would bend the knee, literally in praise and worship. In case you're wondering about the differences between them, a, a people pleaser, uh, someone motivated by approval, verse four, simply wants another person to like them. But a glory seeker, verse six, wants the other to worship them. A people pleaser thinks, I just want to be in your presence and I just want to be equal to you. A glory seeker thinks, I just want you to admit that I'm more valuable than you. And Paul is saying, this had nothing to do with our ministry among you. I I love verses six and seven. Keep, Keep following along with me. Paul has said, we didn't seek glory from you, And by the way, as a reminder, if you're newer to the Bible, the Bible, when it talks about glory, uh, describes glory as something that is very bright and something that is very weighty. So the glory of God is described as something very bright and something weighty. And Paul literally says this at the end of verse six. We didn't seek glory from you, though we could have been literally weighty or burdensome as apostles of Christ. You know how when important people walk into a room, they make a splash? Paul says, we didn't throw our weight around. We could have, but verse seven, we we were gentle among you. We didn't make a splash. We were humble. It's almost as if we weren't there. And then Paul gives a metaphor uh, for their gentleness. He literally writes this. We were gentle like a wet nurse taking care of her own child. The word mother is nowhere to be found in the Greek. In the Greco-Roman world, uh, in Thessalonica, uh, women didn't breastfeed their babies unless they had to. Women would pay for a wet nurse from the lowest classes of society. Uh, They they would pay for this wet nurse uh, to nurse and to care for their child. And so if you think about what Paul says when he strings these words together, uh, being a, a wet nurse was a shaming reality and nursing your own child was also a shaming reality. And Paul is saying, as apostles, as representatives of the king of kings, as one with, you could argue, the highest rank of any man walking on the earth. We could have thrown our weight around, but we were like the lowest of the low among you. So if you look at verses three through seven as a whole, Paul rattles off these six base or sinful or selfish motives. And he says in verse three, our appeal, our ministry was not sourced by any of these motivations. In the three weeks we were among you, we were absolutely, positively motivated by the desire to please God because he had approved of us. We'll come back to that later. Next, the second description of the person Paul was. We'll put this on the screen. Paul and his team were emboldened uh, by a worthy purpose. Look at verses one and two. For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you is not in vain. Again, I hate to go back to it, but this word was used all the time about the sophists. Uh, the, The real philosophers would say, we have a purpose to what we do. They have no purpose other than their own. When Paul says, we didn't come to you in vain, he's saying, we didn't come to you empty of purpose. Verse two, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. 
Paul is saying we were so passionate about our purpose. We were so passionate about declaring to you the abundant and the eternal life that you can have in Jesus Christ. We were so passionate. We had this incredible boldness to follow through in our mission even though we had just experienced horrific suffering in Philippi and even though we were in the midst of much conflict in Thessalonica. Boldness in the midst of pain. Look at how Paul summarizes what happened to him in Philippi. He said, we had already suffered, that's speaking to physical pain, and we had been shamefully treated, that's emotional and psychological and sociological pain. If you turn to Acts chapter 16 this afternoon, you can read how Paul and Silas and Philippi had been drugged into the marketplace so that the masses could see them. They were stripped of their clothes, naked to the bone. They were mocked and beaten. They were severely beaten uh, with multiple rods. They were thrown into the deep darkness of the inner prison and put in stocks, still naked. And when God miraculously delivers them from that, They tidy up some things in Philippi and they head to Thessalonica. And even in the midst of incredible conflict in Thessalonica where people were dying, he says, we are so emboldened by God and by his purpose for our lives that we kept declaring the gospel to you, the abundant and eternal life that you can have in Jesus. I mean, think about it. There were cultural advantages to Paul's calling. There was the opportunity for power, and for approval, and for pleasure, and for control, and for fame. Paul says in verses three through seven, we were not motivated by any of those things that tend to come along with our calling. And at the same time, there was these cultural downsides to Paul's calling. Whenever an itinerant philosopher, which is what the world thought of Paul, whenever an itinerant philosopher would be rejected by a community, at at least they would be shamed and sent out of the city. And at most, uh, they they would be stripped naked and stoned. We're going to give more thought to this in a minute for now. Just think about how great it would be. Think about how great it would be to not get attached to the cultural advantages of our calling. To not seek life in any way in the idols prevalent in our calling but to also and at the same time be so passionate about our calling and our purpose that we courageously take on and and, and engage and face and enter into even the disadvantages, the hardships, the risks prevalent in that very same calling. Paul's saying, I was not motivated by the upside and I did not enter into or shy, I did not shy away from entering into the downside. That's the person I was. First, sourced by the highest motivation. Second, emboldened by the greatest of purposes. Third, energized by a selfless and sacrificial love. Verses eight and nine. Look at verse eight. Ruth spoke about this extensively last week, so I I will not speak to it all, but I'll just read it. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear, beloved to us. Paul says, we loved you. Paul says, we long to be connected to you. Paul says, we didn't just come and share with you the gospel. We came willing to share our own souls, our own selves, our own existence. And then Paul turns to this tangible example of selfless and sacrificial love. Look at verse nine. 
For you remember, brothers and sisters, our labor and toil, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul starts out with these two words, labor and toil. They speak of strenuous physical labor. And then he adds a third word for strenuous labor, worked. He said we worked night and day. Sometimes, in fact, I always thought that Paul worked during the day making tents and that he preached at night. That's not what he says here. He says they worked during the day and at night. It says that, that, that he, he worked during the day and at night so that they wouldn't be a burden to them. And while they were working, they proclaimed the gospel to them. So we know from the book of Acts that on the weekends, Paul would go to the synagogue and preach the gospel for the three weeks he was there. And this verse seems to indicate that he also preached the gospel while he was working, making tents day and night. Now listen to this. This is, this is really important. We know from Philippians 4 that Paul came. He was in Philippi first. We know from Philippians 4 that he came to Thessalonica with money from the Philippians. But we also know that the, the folks in Philippi were very poor and it wasn't enough to cover his expenses. We know from the book of Acts and from 2 Corinthians that Paul entered into Corinth and he ministered day and night. He did not work day and night. He ministered day and night because the Thessalonians paid for his mission. Are you following me? In Philippi, leaves with their money. In Thessalonica, goes to Corinth, they send him money. But, but listen to this. While evangelizing a city, Paul refused to take a dime from anybody until they had received the riches of Christ and the gospel. So Paul, who was he as a person? He was energized by this selfless and sacrificial love. He was willing to preach to the, the wealthy Thessalonians. Think about it. They are wealthy and he won't take a dollar from them. He works day and night preaching to them on the weekends and, and preaching to them while he's working so that he didn't use them in the least when preaching to them the blessings and the riches of the gospel. So that's the person Paul was. I want to spend about five to seven minutes giving some thought to the path to becoming that person. If there's nothing in you yearning to be like Paul, you have to seriously consider whether or not you're a believer in Jesus. There is something incredibly enticing about watching this beautiful life of love. And so what I want to do is I want to talk about the path to becoming that person. The primary application, of course, from this passage is what to do if you're an apostle and a church planter and you're in another city and someone slanders you. That's like the primary application. But since that doesn't apply to too many people in here, I was intrigued by the question, how do we become like that? How do we uh, enter into that kind of caliber of living? As I said, it sounds enticing. It sounds heroic. It sounds incredible to me to be driven by pure motives, to be bold in the purpose that God's given me, even when it's hard, to be selfless and to be sacrificial uh, in and towards the people I love? How do I become that person? Or said differently, what's the path I walk in becoming that person? Paul gives us the answer in verse 12. Now, Paul's talking about his paradigm for ministry at this point. Rue explained a lot of this in detail. Again, I'll just read through it. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you, literally insisted 
that you walk in a manner suitable to, commensurate with, worthy of God. And here's the crucial part. We are in trouble if it stops there. Don't miss this. The God who calls you, beckons you, summons you into his own kingdom and into his own glory. If Paul simply said and only said, walk in a manner worthy of God, as if we had to do that to be in relationship with God, we would be overwhelmed and we would be doomed to failure. But Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of God, the God who calls you into relationship. Paul, Paul, listen to this. Paul is saying, live your life in light of the fact that God calls you into his kingdom, into his glory. Live your life in light of that fact and live your life in the same way that God called you into his kingdom and glory. It's both. Live as if it's true and live the same way he did it for you. How did God call us, beckon us, summons us into relationship? Jesus. The gospel. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul's going to say exactly that. He's going to say God called you to himself through the preaching of the gospel, through the preaching of Jesus, through the preaching of salvation by grace. And when Paul says, walk in a manner suitable to, commensurate with, worthy of God, he is saying, live your life as one who has already been given eternal life by grace. He's saying, live your life like the one who gave you that life by grace. If we already have life in Jesus, if we already have relationship with the divine, if we're already destined for God's, for God's consummated kingdom, for his realm of utter glory called glorification in the Bible, the new heavens and the new earth, if that's already true, Paul's saying you don't need anything from approval and from power and from pleasure and from praise. If God is calling us into his glory, we don't need man's glory. If we have the acceptance of God in Christ, we don't need man's acceptance. If we have life in Jesus, if we have life in the gospel, we don't need to seek life in anything else and we don't have to shrink back from the pain that's involved in our life. So what's the path to becoming the person Paul was? It's walking as one already redeemed, already called. And it's walking like the one who called us and redeemed us. That's what it means when he says a man are commensurate with suitable of and worthy of God. Said differently, and and this is huge, to live like Paul. We, like Paul, have to live like we're already redeemed and saved because we are, and we have to live like how we were redeemed. I know that's confusing, but I'm I'm gonna give like four examples and we'll be done. We have to live like those called and we have to live like the one who called us. This is how we live a life worthy of God. So in other words, as an example, to not live for man's approval, verse four, we have to live out of the approval we already have in Jesus. So Jesus lived a life that was well-pleasing to God and then gave us that record and that righteousness when he died for how poorly we have lived. That's to live in a manner worthy of God, the one who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Or to not seek glory or even demand the respect that is rightfully ours. To be light and gentle among those we want to serve. We have to know that Jesus laid aside his glory to become a man in order to die on the cross for us. To walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you is to live as though that's true and then to live in the same way for others. Or for Paul to work so hard that he didn't have to take a dime from people until they were converted. 
This could only happen by Paul realizing that he was made rich in Christ by God's grace. He was made rich in Christ by Christ becoming poor. That's 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And so through Christ, through Christ becoming naked and bankrupt on the cross, Paul realized that he was clothed and he was a man of inestimable worth and wealth. And Paul was made rich before he ever gave anything. And since he was eternally rich before he ever gave anything to Jesus, he would give Jesus away before he ever took anything from the people he was sharing him with. That's what it means to walk in a manner worthy of God. He's walking as one rich and he's making other people rich in the same way Jesus made him rich. Or last one, for Paul to continually put himself into situations where he would likely be shamed and beaten. He had to know that Jesus was stripped naked, beaten, scourged, exposed on the cross for him so that he could be clothed in Jesus' glory and one day live in a kingdom where there is no pain. He had to first live like the redeemed and the called because he was. And he had to live like the one who redeemed him and called him in the same manner. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, for this hope that we are celebrating today, that you are making us different. We praise you that you are making us more loving and more sacrificial Uh, more kind and more humble. We love you and we praise you and we thank you because your gospel is not just God's uh, posture towards us, but but God's power in us to make us us different. We thank you, Jesus, uh, for this yet again. And we ask for you to send your Holy Spirit uh, into us to fill us with power, for your Holy Spirit to be evident and powerful among us as a community. We pray that that you would help us to live as those called and redeemed and loved and forgiven, uh, declared righteous, uh, destined for glory. Would you help us to practically live this way so that we might seek uh, no life in this life, but serve others with the life you've given us. In your name we pray these things, Lord Jesus.